Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together today and we're thankful that you've already brought us to the waters of your word and you've fed us, you've nourished us. And Lord, I thank you for these friends who are here. I thank you for giving us the opportunity to read your word together, to think about the Bible together. And we pray for our friend Jerry today as he's going through tests, that you'll bless him at St. Vincent's especially and give sis a sense of your presence and blessing as well. So, Father, we anticipate you to speak because you promised to do that with your word. And so we're, we're, we anticipate that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, so last week we talked a little bit about sort of an overview of John's gospel. Um, John's gospel views Jesus' identity from a holistic perspective, if you remember that. In other words, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though there are traces throughout the developing narrative that um, reveal the true character of who Jesus is and his divine identity, there's a sense of unfolding in the pattern, uh, the narrative pattern in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I mean Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whereas John views Jesus' identity from the totality of his person, his uh, divine personhood, including his death and resurrection, and also, if you remember, including the purview of the mission that would be propelled by Jesus' life and ministry and his disciples. So John's Gospel views things from the whole. We talked last week about the necessary relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. Is that something very central to John's thought? Um, And then we, we mentioned briefly the interplay in the Gospel of John between a theology and history, or between revelation and history. And one of the little maxims that I gave you last week, and I, you know, any, I steal all my thoughts, so th- this comes from somebody else. Um, you know, see, we get Spurgeon quoted around here. Spurgeon said, no really good sermon is without plagiarism. I mean, every, everyone's got some plagiarism. Um, but the, 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 the little maxim is that proximity to historical reality is not necessarily a guarantee of truth. I'll say it again. Proximity to historical reality is not necessarily a guarantor of truth. Now that's something to really think about because I, we live in a, in a highly... Um, our, our consciousness as modern people as it relates to history is highly calibrated. We want to know ev- how events happened, how they really happened. But we don't often take into account that all history is necessarily interpreted history. And more than that, people who are in the events themselves as they are taking place often have a worse perspective, or at least not a full perspective, as those who get to see it in retrospect. Um, I mean, just think about all of us in here can remember the events of 9-11, right? We were there when it happened. We were proximate to the historical reality as our television sets were turned on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we've understood the full panoply of what happened in that moment. It's taken time and will continue to take more time. Another example of this is Civil War history. Not very long pattern of time there, or period of time, is it? Who are the history buffs? 1861, is that right? 1864 or 5? 65, so we're looking at a rather short period of time, 
And there are more books published on the Civil War every year than any other historical uh, factor, in, 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 I think, in, in the publishing world. Why? Well, because of the intensity of that moment, the multiple factors that were going on sociologically and politically and historically, not to mention the fact that there's massive amounts of primary source data that people have to work through. It's, 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 a, it's, a, mind, it's a minefield. So when we come to the Bible and try to think about the relationship between the Bible and historical reality, that's something we want to affirm without reservation. There's a correspondence between the way in which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John narrate the life of Jesus. There's a correspondence between that and reality itself, but we recognize that that correspondence is an interpretive one. I, I, um, part of the reason I want to teach this class is, is I, I, I wanted to... Um, forced myself to read a little bit of Thomas Aquinas' commentary on John. And it has proved to be fascinating, as you would expect, right? As one of my colleagues has a, uh, a T-shirt with a picture of Thomas Aquinas, who was a, he would have appreciated this morning's sermon like I did. In other words, he, he was a, a bigger fellow. There was a cold sculpting going on for Aquinas. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the, uh, the the caption of, of, on the T-shirt is, the original deep fat fryer. That was pretty good, right? Um, so you have Aquinas' commentary. He, he's got a wonderful turn of phrase where he says, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John allow you to see from the perspective of Jesus' humanity the life and the person and the work of, of our Savior. Whereas John, and you know that the Gospels often get attached to animal figures in the history of the church, John is often represented as the eagle. All the other three Gospels are represented as Characters that walk around on this earth. John's gospel is an eagle. Uh, if you go into the Beeson Chapel, you'll see the lamb and the cow and the eagle all in our chapel there where I, where I teach. Representations of the fourfold gospel. Well, the eagle is looking down from the perspective of, of the divinity of Jesus and is allowing us to see. It's, it's revelatory in the sense that the, the curtain is being pulled back so that you can have some sense of the significance of this historical figure that you're encountering. This is not just the carpenter's son. He is that. Fully that. But there's more going on here, significantly more, so that John's Gospel allows us to see the interplay of revelation and history. I've had a few, in my own sort of life of prayer and thinking and teaching, a few aha moments. I don't know if you've had these. I'm sure you have where you've wrestled with something that's troubled you, and then all of a sudden, whether it's a turn of phrase or a particular paragraph or a new angle on the problem, all of a sudden, ba-boom, the light kind of goes on. One of those moments for me was reading a phrase by Karl Barth that the first time I read it, it just didn't make any sense to me. I had to really process this. And the phrase was, Revelation is not a predicate of history, but history is a predicate of revelation. I'll say that again. Revelation is not a predicate of history, but history is a predicate of revelation. And what Bart means by that is history in and of itself. The brute facts. The fact that I can turn to Tacitus or Josephus and other maybe first century writers and later and begin to put together some narrative about Jesus of Nazareth and to claim that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure, and I, could, I can do that. 
But to be able to think about the implications of those historical moments, to talk about God's interaction with time, to talk about the interaction between what's going on with Jesus and the creation of the world itself, and how the world is being rightly ordered again because of this historical figure who's kicking up dust in the first century world of Palestine, I need the revelation of God himself to be able to make sense of that particular narrative reading and that narrative construal. I need revelation to open that for me. Um, So these are two facets that I think we want to hold on to. The historical reality of the Gospels themselves, but also recognizing the the necessity of revelation, the necessity of unveiling, the necessity of God giving us a grammar, a fourfold grammar, to speak about this unique event from the perspective of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because history matters, but history in and of itself is not enough to bring us to the point of belief or to be able to build up from a historical narrative and say, now I know Jesus is X. I need the revelation of God to be able to see those things. Now, I should also say this. That, that certainly entails with it the necessity of Jesus' bodily um, humanity and the fact that he really died and he really rose again from the dead bodily. These things really matter. Um, and you'll read enough in the literature and we're going into Jesus documentary season as, we go into, as we're in Lent and Easter and you'll hear the Borgs and the Funks who will talk about um, the early uh, church experience, the religious experience that they had of the resurrection of Jesus in their hearts. And they'll talk about, of course, the resurrection happened, but it happened in their hearts. And all the accounts that you read in the Bible are a kind of felt reality, an experienced reality, not to downplay it, but it was an experienced reality. It didn't necessarily correspond to something bodily. That's all, that all needs to be demythologized on the way to the truth itself. And I just want us to know that Jesus' bodily resurrection, our whole salvation rests on that. Like, if Jesus, and Paul says this, Jesus is not bodily resurrected, then we're not going to Germany this summer at the Advent. We're going to go to Vegas, and we're going to have a great time. Forget it. All bets are off, right? Um, Because this really is significant about the bodily resurrection. I don't know if you remember, gosh, it might have been two years, three years ago now, um, the History Channel, I think, was the channel that did this. They they discovered um, Jesus' tomb, family tomb. Do you remember this? Um, and so they did this big documentary where these two archaeologists thought they found Jesus' tomb, and they all, you know, and all the kind of Marys here and Joseph and Jesus, and and, and um, you know, that's that's not really great. We're not talking about the resurrected tomb. We're talking about the family tomb where it's assumed that Jesus' bones are in there, right? So that's not good news, you know. Um, and after after uh, I sat I sat in a doctoral seminar in St. Andrews. Uh, with Richard Balkum, and uh, who, leading New Testament scholar, and this was the time when they had found the, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, ossuary, which was the little box that was apparently held his bones, and that has since proven to be a fr- fraudulent. Um, but at the time, most scholars—I mean, we're talking about serious scholars—thought this was the real deal. And for some reason, Professor Balkum was really excited about this thing. So he was handing a handout out, and he was talking about the tomb, and we were deciphering the Aramaic on the side. It was all that thing going on. And, and then he said, you know, and it's very likely, I could see him with his sort of his British accent, it's very likely that that, that uh, Austria contains the bones of Jesus. And then he went on, and then he stopped, and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Those are the bones we don't want to find. All right. <laughs> he meant the bones of, of James. Um, so if you remember this story on the, on the History Channel, they did the big, the big documentary. And then they had, and I thought the History Channel did a good job on this, they had a live debate afterward, moderated by Ted Koppel, who was brilliant at his role in that, in the, as a moderator. So he's moderating this debate, and you had the two archaeologists on the side who are arguing that this really is Jesus, and then you have, on the other side, a Catholic priest, a fellow named Daryl Bach, who's an evangelical Jesus scholar, and then, um, uh, oh, William Dever, who's an archaeologist who, by the way, has no dog in the fight of whether or not Jesus is true in the ancient Israel. He's, he's not a believing archaeologist. He called that whole thing, by the way, in his terms, archaeoporn. That was his term. Right? That's, 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 a, that's a pretty brilliant turn of phrase, actually. Um, but uh, in the exchange, right, the, the, Catholic, the Catholic priest, let's, he said something that just, what, he did, I don't think he meant it, it just came out the wrong way. But he said, and I think I'm quoting him verbatim here, listen, for my faith, if we find Jesus' spleen, which I realize is anatomically impossible, but if we find his spleen or his femur, or we find a bone of Jesus, it's not necessarily detrimental to the faith. And I saw that Daryl Bach was there, there's three of them, and you could just see that he's starting to squirm. He was like, you know, squirm. And he just sort of interjects kindly and said, well, I'd, I'd just say from, from my perspective, if we find Jesus' bones, it's a really big deal. It'd be a problem, right? So we want to, we, when we talk about the intersection of revelation and history and the necessity of the one to the other, we're not downplaying the one in an effort to bolster the other. We're seeing the two as concomitant the one with the other, as necessary the one to the other. History matters. Those particular years matter. They're important. But at the same time, my ability to understand what was really going on in those moments is predicated solely on the fact that God is going to tell me, via his own revelatory word, the significance of that encounter. All right, next thing. John's Gospel, to kind of get a sense of what John's Gospel is about, I think we need to begin at the end. So if you have a Bible or a phone, let's look at two texts quickly. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And then the end of John 20. John, John, the end of John is classically difficult to sort of figure out because it seems like there are two endings. Um, and maybe so. I, we won't sort that out this morning. But here's the first ending, verse 30 of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, his, of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son, of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now look at the end of John's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 25. Now, I don't really want to get into this, but I should tell you there are, there's textual evidence, by the way. In the manuscript tradition of John 21, 25, there are certain traditions where it's a palimpsest that's set on top of uh, the, the ending of John 20. In other words, a palimpsest is when Old, uh, uh, earlier texts are then written, uh, later texts are written on top of older texts. And so, I, and again, I'm, I'm not going to make an argument for this, I'm just going to make an assertion. It's my opinion, I changed my mind on this, but it's my opinion that John 21, 25, this last verse, is not just the concluding verse to John's Gospel, but to the entirety of the fourfold Gospel canon. So this is, a, this is an interpretive claim about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to my mind, not just... 
um, the ending of John's Gospel. And this is what it says. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Where were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What a great phrase. Okay. All right, so here you have this. Now, there are other many things, but these, but, the, the, but these are written that you might believe. So what do we have here? I used to think that the ending of John's Gospel was a superlative claim primarily in its force. In other words, you think this is good, what you got in John? Man, he did so many other things, we could write books to the moon and back. That's, I think that was traditionally the interpretation that I gave to that verse. I actually don't think it's intended primarily to be a superlative. I think it's meant to be a counterfactual, um, a statement of negation. In other words, yes, many other things could be written because he did so many things. I and mean, you could go to the moon and back with them. But these are written that ye might believe. It's a statement that's claiming the sufficiency of the fourfold canon, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you just want to limit it to John, fair enough, John's gospel, that yes, he did other things, but these here are preserved for you as the unique medium by which God is communicating you the significance of the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And we know, don't we now? I mean, you, you, you hear all the excitement, Huff, Huffington Post or wherever, um, new gospel found, right? The Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas Iscariot, which was discovered, what, three, four, five, seven years ago, which there was no, no physical evidence of that except for early church fathers saying, don't read that one, right? So we, we, didn't, even know, we didn't even know it was around. Um, and then all of a sudden, it, it, it appears, um, and now we have, and, and by the way, all those Mary Magdalene, Judas, the Gospel of Judas, um, the Gospel of Thomas, they're all Gnostic Gospels that um, are not, again, I know you're going to see this in the Jesus season coming up with the documentaries, but they're not to be viewed as alternative narratives of early Christian faith. They're, they're counterfeit. There's no other way to say it. They're, they're counterfeit. Do you know how the Gospel of Thomas ends, by the way? You, you ladies will appreciate this. The Gospel of Thomas ends by saying, and all women will then be turned into men. So that they can share in the eternal glory. That kind of thing. It's like, well, that's, that's got a lot of cachet to it, doesn't it, right? That's a big. Okay. So, the point is, the Gospel of John, at the end, tells us why the book is written. These things are written for the purpose of engendering belief and faith. They're written so that you can know the significance of who this figure actually was and is, and that you can put your faith and your trust in that figure as the revelation of God's grace and His truth. The unveiling of God's own glory revealed in the face of the, our Savior, Jesus. These things are written. These have been preserved. These have been recognized in the life of the church as both apostolic and canonical so that you might have a living attestation to the significance of the person and work of Jesus in your midst and in your life. To you engender faith. That's why it's here. Not necessarily so that you can itch all of your historical curiosities. Not necessarily so that you can put together a narrative that you might want to put together because you feel like you've got a lot of missing parts there that need to be filled in. And guess what? There are a ton of missing parts. I, mean, I don't know if you feel that way reading the Gospels, but I can read the Gospels and go, my goodness, I mean, 
what, we, what was going on in the carpenter? How good of a carpenter was he? And uh, what was he doing for those 29 years? I mean, we, we see him when he's born, then we see him when he's 12, and then what's he doing? Did he play soccer for the local league? And I mean, there's so much that we don't know about Jesus. And it's as if the Gospels are telling us, by the way, um, you know, you, you can be as historically curious as you want, but we're not, I'm, I'm not going to let you know about that. Um, the Bible's frustrating in that way, by the way. Old Testament, too. That's not just a New Testament thing. Uh, uh, another thing. Another thing. Jesus is the dispenser in, God's, in, in John's Gospel of truth. Truth. Matter of fact, it's, um, it's a leitmotif. It's a red thread that holds together the Gospel of John. It's what makes Pilate's question when he asks Jesus, what is truth in this Gospel? So poignant, because it's not just a one-off statement from Pilate. It's a statement whose character and source has been, we've tracked it all the way through John's Gospel. And what does it mean to say that Jesus is the truth? Well, I think in John's Gospel, that claim is a twofold claim. Number one, rooted in the Old Testament. There's a Hebrew word called emet, which is truth or faithful or faithfulness. And I think the claim that when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes unto the Father but through me, when he's making that claim, Jesus is saying two things. Number one, I'm the faithfulness of God on demonstration. And number two, I'm going to show you the true way to that God. I am the demonstration of God's faithfulness. I am the demonstration of God's truth. And I will likewise show you the way that you can follow in the path to that self-same God who's revealed Himself in me. So it's both claiming that Jesus is the faithfulness of God on display and it's a claim that Jesus will now show us the way uh, to our, our Creator God. Isn't that something you think about that? This, this, weighs, this weighs heavily, I think. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of the faithfulness of God. Think about all of the pictures that you know. We're, we're all old enough here for, to remember flannel graphs. Go back to the flannel graph days of your childhood. I mean, how many flannel graph stories from the Old Testament do we remember about God demonstrating His faithfulness to His people? Coming to a sea. I mean, it starts at the beginning, right? They sinned Adam and Eve, and then He provided coverings for them. Cain kills his brother, but then he preserves his life to the end, cares for him. Ishmael gets kicked out, but God sustains Ishmael even in the wilderness. Israel is a mess, but God hears Israel's cry of burden, and He redeems Israel from Egypt and brings Israel to the, to the edge of the Red Sea. And in one of my favorite lines in all the Bible, God says, Moses... Tell them to step aside because I'm going to fight for them right now. A great, great claim. Uh, move aside because I'm going to come in and I'm going to take care of some business here. And he redeems them and they choke on the dust as they get to the other side. And, and then they go into exile and God brings them back. I mean, God's demonstration of his faithfulness to his people, his recalcitrant people, is demonstrated in the Old Testament again and again and again. In fact, all the bad stuff that we tend to associate with the Old Testament, is never an end in itself. All that judgment stuff you see in the Old Testament is meant to be a means toward God saying, hey, I want to display for you again the magnanimity of my grace toward you, of my faithfulness toward you, of my love for you. 
And John's Gospel tells us all of that, all of those pictures in the Old Testament are just prologue, prelude. They're indications that flash lightning in the moment of Israel's lived experience before God to say, your God is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's quick to forgive. And they all anticipate something much bigger in the life of God's dealing with His people. And when you start following the narrative of Jesus through John's Gospel, John is at pains to tell you, and by the way, the pinnacle of that moment is the revelation of God in Jesus. The pinnacle of His demonstration of God's faithfulness to be God for His people, to commit Himself in covenant to them, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And I'll go so far to do that that I'm going to enflesh myself entering into the world, bearing the weight of your sin in both my life and in my death and raising from the dead for the sake of creating the new world that I meant from the beginning. This is a demonstration of His faithfulness. Jesus is the faithfulness of God on display. And when you follow the narrative, it's radical faithfulness. It's the kind of faithful love, the kind of loyalty. That's the term that I think we should probably have somewhere in our connotative you know, apparatus here. He's loyal to His people. Even when they're unloyal to Him, God just he can't deny Himself. can't. And here in the Gospel narrative of John, we see God's demonstration of His faithfulness, of His truth uh, displayed for us in ways that really we could have never anticipated. It, it boggles the imagination. So when we come to John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What's John doing? John is, John is being a first-rate theologian right here. It's beautiful. In the beginning. In arche is the Greek, right? Um, which, if you turn back to Genesis chapter 1, the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 1 is Bereshit bara Elohim, right? In the beginning, God created. But the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it begins in arche, in the beginning. And here's John's Gospel saying, in the beginning. In other words, when we're going to start talking about Jesus, who this sandal-footed person is from the first century world, if we're going to start to give an account of his narrative and his story and his identity and who he really is, who are you, Jesus? John says, we've got to go back to in the beginning. We don't go just to the manger, right? John's Gospel pushes us always, always, always back to the beginning of the created order itself in Arche. So there's an intentional intertextual link here to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God, uh, the, the Word was with God and the Word was God. So what do you have here? You have the beginning of Trinitarian thought in its best. Why? Because the Word is something, the Logos is something that's distinct from God and actually identified as God both at the same time. He was with God, and He was God. I just finished this with students at Beeson a couple weeks ago where we went through Genesis 1 together. And uh, it's just 
so powerful. I just love the, the opening creation uh, the narrative that you have. Because what happens in the creation narrative? Did we talk about this last week? Did I talk about creation? I forget where I'm saying things. Um, God creates the world by the power of his word. That's the word that we're talking about here. Now, there's lots of interesting conversations about what Logos is in the Greco-Roman philosophical world, but I'm just going to kind of put it on the, on the sidewalk here and say, when John is thinking about the Word becoming flesh, his primary orbit of thinking is the Old Testament Word of God. The instrument by which God creates the world out of nothing. In the beginning was the Word. Um, did I talk about the Enuma Elish last week? I'm going to stop here in a second. But did I talk about that? I can't remember. Okay, I don't think so. Um, I read to my students, just for fun, the, the Babylonian uh, uh, cosmological myth epic, the Enuma Elish, the, the end of it. This is how the Babylonians think the world came into being. And what you have is the god Marduk gets into this cosmic battle with Tiamat. He cuts Tiamat in half puts half of the Tiamat, she becomes the heavens, and the other half, her blood is spurred. I mean, it's really kind of a fun scene. He says, he blew wind into her, she gets real big, and then he cuts her in half, and she explodes open. I mean, it's a quite lovely scene, actually. And, and, that's, and he uses her body parts to make the world. And then he becomes the primary god above all gods. In other words, from the Babylonian mythological view of the creation of the world, how the world came into being, cosmogony is the technical term. The answer to that is our God beat another God in a cosmic duel. What does Genesis 1 say? God's not in any contest with anybody. He speaks by the creative agency of His Word. And all of a sudden, it's there. Light separated from darkness. Water separated from land. So when we read John chapter 1, you do not have a more robust claim about the divine identity of Jesus Christ than John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He was with God, and He was the very creative agency by which God spoke the world into existence. Why? Because the Word of God is God. They correlate to one another on the level of shared being. Oh, I've got to stop. So, Lord, thank you for this text, and thank you for John, and uh, thank you, Father, that we just get a bit of a taste in this book about the overwhelming character of who you are. And, and I, I guess, Lord, whatever view we have of you, Jesus, it, it just needs to be bigger. And I pray that you'll help John's gospel do that for us, Lord, that, that you'll peel the curtain back a bit and let us see the enormity of the claims that are being made here that... You, Jesus of Nazareth, who entered into the world to redeem us, and the world didn't know you, they didn't recognize you, even though you, Jesus, were the self-same one who spoke the world into being. Lord, I pray that that will so arrest our hearts and our imaginations and raise our affections so that we may love you in our lips and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.